Do you feel as if reality has been altered? Or that things are a bit off? That something or someone has interfered with our collective present moment? Then this is a podcast for you. This is the sound of duality. This is the sound of the sonification of a DMT molecule as it travels through your body, opening you to the world and the knowledge that you seek. It's also the sound of sheep and bliss, wandering this universe possibly in both states, and the concept of sonder, playing a role in the opera of life created by these two states of being. So, who are you? Are you the person you remember yesterday? Or are you only you right now in this present moment, never having been part of what you call your memory? Pull up a pew and take a seat. This is a podcast of all you touch and all you see. The guests are everything in between. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the duality of each state of being and your never-ending state of bliss knowledge, and the very thin line between each. Okay, everybody, this is uh, Drew. I can't think of a better intro for this subject with the sound of sheep, and uh, that'll make sense as we go through our interview uh, with uh, Dr. Peter Pry, uh, we, we come to you today with a very somber subject, but a subject, uh, subject which we can't afford to ignore any longer. It's a subject that, uh, it's not a when, uh, it's an if issue. The subject I'm talking about is an EMP attack on the United States or its allies, or a coronal mass ejection from the sun such as the Carrington event from 1859. Our magnetosphere protects us, but from an event like this, our planet has no defense. So imagine being sent back to the Stone Age in the blink of an eye. This can happen. We've known about this for well over 50 years, yet will not spend the small amount of money to protect us and harden our power grid. This is the greatest existential threat we face today, in my humble opinion, due to the natural threat from the sun or our enemy countries, enemy states, with the absolute capability of achieving this event. So I'll let Dr. Pry explain uh, some of these weapons that I believe are operational hypersonic weapons traveling at up to 27 times the speed of sound or the buildup of submarines capable of launching these undetectable missiles and torpedoes that can travel at up to 200 kilometers an hour. As John Lennon said, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. That is certainly my dream, other than living underneath a socialistic regime. But we can certainly realize this dream as a nation, the greatest nation on earth, in my humble opinion. Folks, one high-altitude blast by a satellite at 300 kilometers will put us into the Stone Age 
for up to a decade or more and kill 99% of the U.S. population. So Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, welcome and please tell us about your background and prestigious position that will hopefully make the U.S. government see the light and spend the money to protect its citizens. Okay, my name is uh, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. I've uh, the electromagnetic pulse threat that you're describing, EMP, is uh, the one I and my colleagues uh, have been most concerned about. Uh, I and uh, others on the Congressional EMP Commission and during my service at the CIA and on the House Armed Services Committee, basically spent my whole professional life looking at weapons of mass destruction of various kinds, chemical, biological, nuclear. But the one we have always been most concerned about is the electromagnetic pulse, because it is the least understood, even today, after many years of trying to educate the public and policymakers, few people understand it or know about it, what an EMP is. And, um, and yet, it's also a existential threat uh, uh, that, uh, that, that we can solve fairly easily. It would not cost very much to protect the nation against it, and we know how to protect against it. And it, uh, it has been a long failure of, uh, of leadership, lack of political will, uh, that, uh, that has prevented us from getting the country protected. Now, what is an EMP? Let's start off by talking about that. In your presentation, you were kind of mixing apples and oranges because the uh, hypersonic delivery vehicles and the submarine uh, that you were referring to, the Poseidon submarine from the Russians, that's something else we can talk about later. Those are new nuclear super weapons the Russians have. Let's start off by talking about the uh, the threat from the sun. Absolutely. Uh, nature can do an electromagnetic pulse. You referred to the 1859 Carrington event, which is the most powerful EMP solar superstorm on record. And what happens is the, uh, you know, the sun hurls out chunks of itself called coronal mass ejections, traveling about a million miles an hour. And they are thrown out randomly from the sun. And normally, you know, they don't, they don't hit us usually. But every now and then, one of these things will slam into the into the Earth's magnetosphere, traveling a million miles an hour. They don't reach the surface of the Earth. And if they did, they'd, they'd, they'd uh, scour oh, right yes. off of Earth by the intense heat of these, uh, of these coronal mass uh, <clears throat> ejections. But the magnetosphere protects the Earth so that, uh, so that the coronal mass ejection uh, you know, is, is split and, and flows past us. But in the course of doing that, it distorts the magnetosphere and causes it to wobble around. And that's what causes an EMP. It's basically a magnetic field which is moving around. And the Earth has this huge magnetic field around it. And when a coronal mass ejection causes it to move, it generates electricity, an electromagnetic pulse, which will uh, get into power grids and uh, long line systems, communication systems, it can damage satellites. And uh, in the case of the Carrington event back in 1859, uh, it destroyed telegraph systems all over the world. You know, the uh, telegraph systems had been deployed by the colonial powers in all the major continents except Antarctica. And everywhere, the telegraph systems were destroyed. Telegraph keys were melted. 
telegraph. It even uh, killed one man, didn't lines it? Running through forests, burst into flame and caused forest fires. The great, great, uh, the transatlantic cable had just been laid in 1859. And uh, the pulse was so powerful, it reached down into the depths of the ocean and, uh, and burned mm-hmm. out that transatlantic cable. And it had to be relayed by the, uh, the Great Eastern. Now, Did they kill, kill one person? I think a telegraph operator? I think one. I'm not familiar with that. Okay. I guess, right. I'm sure there were probably people that died from forest fires and things of that sort. Okay, sure. Now, the, uh, uh, now we have geomagnetic storms happen every year. Uh, you know, they, they actually happen routinely, so we know this phenomenon is a real thing since they happen every year. But there are small-scale events that usually don't affect, affect uh, countries in high northern latitudes like Sweden and Finland and Russia. What we're concerned about, the existential threat is from the rare once-in-a-hundred-year geomagnetic superstorm like the 1859 Carrington event. Every now and again, something in between a small geomagnetic or normal geomagnetic storm and something a little bigger happens. Like in, back in 1989, there was a storm called the Hydro-Quebec storm, which blacked out half of Canada in 90 seconds. And uh, it, the, now that blackout only lasted a day. So a lot of people didn't die from it. It didn't end civilization, but it was sort of a warning shot from the sun about what could happen. It's a lot of panic. Civilization didn't end in 1859 because it wasn't yet an electronic civilization. You know, people didn't depend upon the telegraph system to survive. Those were the horse and buggy days. But we should take warning from the fact that a telegraph key from 1859 is about a billion times. That's a billion with a B. It's about a billion times less vulnerable natural EMP from the sun that are modern microelectronics, which operate on much lower voltages and uh, are made of much finer electronics. I've got a telegraph key in my office if, uh, that I often use to show to audiences so that you can just see for yourself the difference. It's a big, clunky, heavy piece of, uh, of metal, a telegraph key. And yeah, then if cool. you just think about what a semiconductor looks like, the thing that runs your cell phone or your personal computer. There's an enormous difference. You don't have to be an electrical engineer to see right. that something that could melt a telegraph key is obviously going to going to do much greater damage to uh, our modern microelectronics. <coughs> so that's uh, the threat from the sun. And uh, uh, the natural EMP, if we have a, uh, a recurrence of the Carrington event, and, and, and it's inevitable that, that it will recur, uh, the EMP would be worldwide and destroy electric grids, communication systems, life-sustaining critical infrastructures worldwide. And uh, the Com- Congressional EMP Commission estimated if we had a nationwide blackout that lasted one year in the United States, <clears throat> 90% of our population would die from starvation, disease, and societal collapse. Nine of 10 Americans. That's right. And there'd be no coming back from that. You know, once you lose such a large part of your population, <coughs> there'd be no coming back from that. So um, now uh, man can also cause a uh, something like a, oh, I should mention also that uh, we had a near miss with a Carrington class coronal mass ejection back on uh, a couple, a few years ago. I think it was July 23rd, 2012. That's right. 
a uh, Carrington class coronal mass ejection crossed the path of the Earth, missed us by three days. And we just weren't facing it correctly, right? I mean, it just barely missed us. <laughs> NASA estimates that if that had happened, it would have, uh, it would have, uh, it would have, it would have destroyed electric grids worldwide and put billions of lives at risk. And their estimate is the likelihood of occurrence of a of a Carrington class uh, geomagnetic event is uh, is twelve percent per decade, twelve percent per decade, which virtually guarantees that within our lifetimes and no later that of our grandchildren, you know, we will experience a natural EMP from the sun, you know, that would put all of civiliz- electronic civilization at risk. Now. That's the natural EMP threat. The uh, man can create a, an EMP that's even, even worse than the EMP from the sun by detonating a nuclear weapon at high altitude above the atmosphere. Uh, any nuclear weapon detonated above 30 kilometers uh, will start generating EMP on the ground over a large area. A nuclear weapon, any kind of nuclear weapon detonated at 30 kilometers altitude, will create an EMP field on the ground with a 600 kilometer radius on the ground. <coughs> That's a uh, good chunk of the United States. And that alone would be enough to end the United States as a civilization. Because something like that, say you had a primitive atomic weapon such as terrorists could build, you could get that up to 30 kilometers with a weather balloon. And if they detonated it anywhere over the eastern part of the United States, it would collapse the eastern grid. You know, 75% of our electricity, most of our population lives off the eastern grid. You know, we can't survive without the eastern grid. And um, the uh, if you go up higher, you get a bigger EMP field. North Korea's got two satellites orbiting over us, the KMS-3 right. and the KMS-4. They're orbiting at about 400 kilometers. And they... Uh, uh, if they have a nuclear weapon on them, and the EMP Commission, on which I served as the uh, chief of staff for 17 years, assessed that these <coughs> that these satellites may well have, they may well be armed, nuclear armed. We don't know for sure, but it's uh, uh, we think the likelihood is so great that we recommended that the satellites be shot down. Uh, and if they are nuclear armed for a surprise EMP attack, you know, the EMP field you could generate at that altitude, 400 kilometers, would cover most of North America, all 48 contiguous United States, most of Canada, and a good chunk of Mexico. The Caribbean a little bit. Now, um, a third uh, EMP threat can come from non-nuclear EMP weapons. These don't generate fields as big as the nuclear EMP weapons. Uh you know, they are very localized, usually a couple of hundred yards, uh, but they're much more available than a nuclear weapon. You can actually buy devices uh, out of electronic magazines. For example, there's this thing called the EMP suitcase, which is advertised for sale in electronic magazines, and it looks just like a suitcase, and it will create a non-nuclear EMP field out to a range of a, a few hundred yards. And very intense field, 100,000 volts per meter, uh, which is a very intense field. You don't have to be an electrical engineer to understand. I mean, think about 
think about the electricity in your home, you know, the uh, typical voltage that comes out of a, a plug in your home is 120 volts. Imagine if you had a, an outlet in your home that was 100,000 volts. What, what do you think would happen if you plugged your vacuum cleaner into that? It would probably be vaporized. So even this non-nuclear EMP weapon is creating very destructive, very high EMP fields. But it's not intended to be used as a, I should say, device. Because uh, this is legitimate. The manufacturers don't intend for it to be used as a weapon. It's a legitimate diagnostic tool. It's used, for example, if you're trying to lay out an airport and you want to know how far away the uh, the uh, landing strip has to be from the uh, traffic control tower radars so that the radars don't fry the electronics in the plane <coughs> before you build the airport. You, know, you might want to uh, use a device like this to, to say, well, this is how far apart they have to be so that we can be safe. Or we have heavy electronics inside of the uh, heavy electronics inside of the uh, machinery in a factory. You might want to uh, lay these things out using this uh, this EMP suitcase to simulate the the heavy machinery so that you'll know how far apart they have to be spaced so that they don't destroy each other. So that's what it's intended to be used. But anyone can buy one. And you don't even need a uh, license or anything. You know, you need a license to drive a car. You need a license to buy a gun, a pistol. But you don't need a license to buy the EMP suitcase. And wow. this is basically a weapon of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it's, we've arrived at a place in our, in our history now where a, a lunatic or a terrorist or a criminal group, you know, that had the money to buy the EMP suitcase, you know, could throw this thing in the trunk of their car and drive out to an extra high voltage transformer substation somewhere and just wait in, until the flames and sparks start coming up so they know to destroy the transformer so that one individual, you know, could topple the technological pillars of civilization for an entire major metropolitan area like, like Boston or New York or Washington. And if you had a team of people with these EMP suitcases, you could, you could black out the whole country. Couldn't even snipers, let me interrupt you, but I've heard that even snipers could do the same thing at, at well-placed, uh, uh, that they could take out certain transformers that would have the same effect. Um, well, they wouldn't have the same effect, but it, uh, you could take out the, the grid in the whole country by means of snipers or people are armed with rocket-propelled grenade launchers. Uh, U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission did a study and on, uh, uh, reportedly did a study, and they found, you know, we've got 2,000 DHV transformer stations in the country. And if you were, if you knew which nine to take out, you know, there are nine that are particularly important. And if you had a sniper team or people armed with explosives and you took out those nine transformers, you could black out the whole country for over a year. But it's not wow. really the same effect as using a non-nuclear EMP weapon, you know, because there what you're doing is you're using kinetic effects to destroy the transformer. Whereas with the EHV transformer, uh, with the EMP, non-nuclear EMP weapon, you're using a different technology. You're using a electromagnetic pulse. pulse. And uh, there are 
significant advantages to using a non-nuclear EMP weapon compared to using a rifle or a bomb. Sure. Because the failure modes, uh, you know, can look very similar to, um, to, uh, system, to normal system failures. Okay. That do happen over time, over time, except, except the overloads are happening in a much more dramatic, faster way. And I, I think that the reaction, our ability to defend ourselves, would be much less if you were using the non-nuclear EMP weapon, because the, um, because the, uh, I mean, immediately you're going to know if somebody's using a high-powered rifle or or explosives that the grid is under attack. I mean, that's a clear and unambiguous signature that the grid is on grid is under attack when you're blowing up the transformers using explosives. But if you fry the transformers so that they, you know, they basically, uh, I, given that the resistance that exists in the electric power industry to facing up to these realities, I guarantee you there'll be a great debate going on within the grid, within the utilities. They're not going to go to the FBI. They're not going to go to the Department of Homeland Security. Their managers right. are going to say, well, wait right. a minute. Who uh, and how? Are just, uh, aren't these just, how do we know that we're under attack? Aren't these yeah. just normal failures? We don't want to uh, panic because then these guys are going to want to regulate us. So they're going to cover it up. And uh, <clears throat> just like they did, they even tried to cover up a case where the, uh, where the grid actually was obviously under attack by, higher, by, by rifles. But you've got yeah, the advantage of using the non-nuclear AMP weapon where you turn the bureaucratic bad habits of the industry against itself. Okay? Because these guys would, are so capable of... Uh, Ignoring the threat and wanting to paper over the threat, that uh, that uh, by the time they came to their senses and started doing the right thing, it would be too late. So there's very significant advantages, you know, from a bureaucratic, political kind of standpoint to use the less uh, a stealthier called the EMP suitcase. It's a stealthier form of attack. <laughs> now. The, the bad guys, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran, they all have in their military doctrines, they all plan to attack our electric grids, and especially, uh, they call it a new way of warfare, uh, sixth generation warfare, cyber war, cyber war, total cyber warfare, total information warfare. They have many different names for it, but they would basically throw in the kitchen sink to attack us. and. Uh, uh, we are very far behind understanding our adversary approach to attacking our electric grid and critical infrastructures. Absolutely. Here in the West, we are sort of debating over, well, what should we be defending against? Should, it be, should we give highest priority to protecting against nuclear EMP or cyber attacks or non-nuclear EMP weapons? or sniper, you know, physical sabotage, which of these things should we really be protecting against? Well, the answer uh, is all of the above, because the above. that's what they plan to do. They would use all of the above, even though you could take down the grid with just one of these, you know, on a protracted basis and destroy our civilization. Any military commander, of course, prefers redundancy. Because the effects are mutually reinforcing, you get a synergistic advantages. You know when you when you have a combined arms approach to attacking anything, 
I like to use as an example the Blitzkrieg invented by Nazi Germany before World War II, which mm-hmm. was one of the greatest revolutions in military affairs in history up to that time. You know, the Western Allies thought that the next big war, the Western Allies back in the 1920s and 30s, hadn't thought of the Blitzkrieg. <clears throat> was off their radar screen. They yeah, thought the imagine no, no defense against that. They thought the next war would be fought like uh, the last one, in trenches, using barbed wire. Uh, the Nazis used a combined arms approach. They had you know, armored divisions. Uh, they had mobile infantry uh, you know, moving in trucks instead of marching forward on foot. They had air power. And they combined all these things so that they would attack the other side with, this, uh, with all three of these. And the effects were devastating. Enabled Nazi Germany to almost win World War II. They overran Europe, right. Western Europe, in uh, in in a year and a half. <clears throat> because in addition to the technological failure on the side of the Western Allies, there was also this failure of strategic imagination. If you look at what the Western Allied armies were thinking of, we also had—I mean, we had air power, we had tanks, and we had <clears throat> we had trucks to move infantry around. But the way we were, th- we were thinking about using them was very much in World War I type terms. You know, the tanks weren't in divisions. They were mixed in with infantry and we were th- thinking of using them like cavalry. And uh, <clears throat> there was a big debate going on in the Western democracies about, well, should we give more, att- which service deserved the most attention? Should it be the infantry? Should it be tanks? Should it be air power? General Haig, who had who had been in charge of the, the British forces in World War One, thought the cavalry was still going to be relevant. And he thought the focus would be on building up a strong cavalry. Well, Pulled all of that proof. turned out to be incorrect. The correct answer was that, you, that we needed not only to build all of those things, airplanes, tanks, mobile infantry, but we needed to imagine a new way of warfare to use all these things in coordination. And on our side, when it comes to Cyber warfare, when we think of cyber warfare, we think of it in terms of computer viruses and hacking. And we don't think of it as a combined arms operation the way the Russians and Chinese and North Koreans and Iranians do. And so our people are arguing among themselves, you know, oh, we want to, all the money should go into cyber, understood as computer viruses and hacking. Uh, But the Green Beret types, the SEAL teams will say, well, no, wait a minute. You can accomplish the same thing with a with a rifle, so we should be focusing on kinetic damage to the grid. The nuclear. I don't mean to interrupt, but I I would just want to say what bothers me too is it's the bureaucracy like you're talking about that we have here. It's the difference in cultures and how China, you know, their culture is so different that they think decades ahead in time and plan in that fashion which is so much different than the way that we do things and, and squabbling over, you know, something today or that over the next year or two, instead of planning out like they do, they, they literally plan decades or even, even centuries, you know, ahead of what they're going to do. Well, there's another and more important difference between our society and the societies of, of Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. And that is that military dictatorships <coughs> like Nazi Germany or like Germany in World War One, 
or like Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran today, their focus is on on military power, on being prepared to fight war. They're poor, paranoid national security states, and they pour their best resources, their best intellectual resources, and their and their material resources into preparing to fight the next war. That's where their creativity goes. That is not the case in free societies. In fact, free societies tend to give low status to our military and to our national security people. It's not the case across all of our society, but but you know that for much of our society, it is true. You can just look at our movies, uh, for example, and how many of them. One of the most uh, frequent villains that appears in, in American Hollywood movies is our own military or our own intelligence services. You know, they're the bad guys. And uh, uh, people who go on to, to for careers in the West Point or join the military, I mean, how many Americans are eager to do that? They're not. Right. The status of going into there is not great. The pay is not great. All the things that we value as a society are not available to people who go into the intelligence services or into the military. And uh, and even the motives of our own military are questioned. You know, uh, that we're war mongers and we're just trying to scare people and uh, we're part of the military industrial complex, right? Uh, our right. creativity, and, and I'm not criticizing it, uh, this isn't just unique to our society, Every free society in history that has ever existed, beginning with the Athenians, basically mm -hmm. thought the same way. Right. And, that's, and, and that's because among a free people, their object is to have a good life. You know, they, they poured their creativity. Look at Athens. They poured their creativity into yep. the Parthenon, into great Perfect art, example. And sculpture and architecture, and to enjoying a good life, you know, having a Philosophical debates with Socrates and, and uh, Alcibiades, well, Alcibiades was also part of his group, not a nice guy, but, you know, <clears throat> so there's a huge... Then they encountered That's the Persians and the Xerxes. Right? That's why we are, historically, we're always behind the eight ball, because, yeah. because bad guys always steal a march on us in terms of, right. in terms of planning for war and being prepared for war. And we never seem to learn that lesson. You know, I mean, there are still people alive who lived through World War II. And those people understand. And that's why they, they tend understand. to vote, you know, for people who want a strong national defense, because they understand the consequences of that. But then when you look at this new young generation that's coming up, they don't, they they don't, don't get that it. experience in their own personal lives. In fact, our universities teach that America is, uh, re is responsible for all the bad things in the world, that we're the problem. And that, unfortunately, free societies tend to do that, too. They tend to be so focused on their own shortcomings because they're not perfect, okay, that they lose sight. You're hitting the most important issue to me, yeah, in what they're teaching. Society in, the in history. <clears throat> most societies which have existed in history are not free. They tend to be authoritarian or totalitarian states, and that's one reason. You know, it's kind of a miracle. That we've got so many free societies at this moment in history. And it's all, all because of the United States, because America has been there to save freedom in two world wars and, uh, and has served as a model so that we've, we've had this brief shining moment in the history of man, you know, beginning with the uh, American Revolution 
where France and other countries have looked to us and, and copied the American experiment. Absolutely. But uh, in the span of human history, this is a very short moment. And, uh, yep. and it's a perilous moment now, you know, because you've got a situation threat that even a failed state like North Korea could take us out. And it's appalling to think that a state like North Korea is able to orbit two satellites over us that could end our civilization, and we don't have the political will to shoot them down. Right. <laughs> anyway, that I'll take a pause here. That's the EMP part of my presentation. I apologize for being sick here. I'm coughing a lot and, and stuff. But if no, I was going to mention that. No worries. I really appreciate. Yeah, you being on. I know. I know you're sick. Not feeling well. But you're doing a great job. Um, yeah, I, I really love that you, that you're hitting on the younger generation. That it's interesting that all of this is is occurring, as you said, as the last of the of quote the greatest generation is is now fading off. They're they're pretty much all passed away. There's only a couple that are left that truly understand what that fight was about. And like when you were bringing up Nazi Germany, you know, thank God Hitler. With, with his hubris made the mistake of trying to fight a battle on two different fronts and, and going after Russia and then Russia, you know, understanding and, uh, the, you know, using weather to its advantage and so on and so forth. But, you know, the whole point is he made that mistake and, you know, if he didn't, we may be living under a different world right now. Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, what is the yeah, right. that there's such a failure to understand history. Yes. You know, people kind of take it for granted that we won World War II now. And people actually, right. there's a, a misconception out there that, oh, that our victory was inevitable. That it was inevitable. No, we were very lucky. We would have won. Well, I'll tell you, the people who lived through that don't have that view. And the people who lived through that understood the truth. For example, what yeah. you said was absolutely true. Really, <clears throat> Nazi Germany had won World War II. In 1940, if Hitler had not decided, he threw away victory in World War II by betraying Stalin and deciding to, to yep. betray the Hitler-Stalin pact. He didn't have to do that. Stalin didn't expect him to do it. I mean, that, you know, right. can you imagine what the situation would have been if the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany remained allies throughout World War II? Yeah. <laughs> How would we have possibly prevailed? Uh, and and thing. D and D Day was a was a miracle as as well. I mean, we what we put together that uh, fake, um, you know, balloon tanks and different, you know, to try to distract them, you know, yeah, to, to think bigger miracle that before that area. Yeah, it, it was a miracle that that we got through. It really was. Uh, for what if Winston Churchill had not been yeah. Prime Minister of Great Britain? Yeah. Okay. okay. It's a Matt accident. He became the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, Neville Chamberlain didn't want Churchill to be his successor. He wanted a guy named Halifax, Lord Halifax, to be his successor. And the only reason <clears throat> Churchill wasn't even elected as Prime Minister, he was basically appointed. There was a meeting between Chamberlain, Halifax, and Churchill that Historians argue over until this day. Lord, Lord Halifax, you know, basically demurred in a gentlemanly like way, uh, and said uh, that he didn't want to be uh, prime minister. He was 
Chamberlain's first choice. And he basically bowed out. And it was only because Halifax decided to kind of withdraw that that Churchill became the the prime minister. Halifax's policy was one of appeasement. That's why Chamberlain wanted him. If we'd gotten Halifax as the prime minister, Britain would have surrendered and not continued the resistance in World War II. And that's not, you know, the winter came early. Uh, that was uh, in a, on the Russian front. You know, there were a number of things that, frankly, are miracles that uh, that that accounted for the Allied victory in World War II. The people that are not appreciated. Well, and Churchill's pressure and bringing us in. He he was the man. He was the only person that that was able to do that. And I I, I just think of that famous speech, you know, of, of we're going to fight them on the landing grounds and on the beaches. And, you know, he really had it under control and, and, and knew the propaganda, you know, in war and how to use it properly There's um, a great movie you know, with about his own people and with us. The darkest hour that people should watch. And, uh, and uh, even Halifax said of Churchill, uh, after that tremendous speech that you're just referring to, even right. Lord Halifax said something like, uh, uh, because they were astonished at how uh, Churchill managed to mobilize a parliament that actually had been on the verge of wanting to surrender and negotiated peace with, with Hitler. And Halifax said of Churchill that uh, uh, that he had he mobilized the English language and sent it to war. And that's what Churchill ah, did wow, in World War II. And, uh, and so but to think that the future of mankind hinged on this one man's eloquence Wow, that's yes, a very close yes, run yes, thing, yes, isn't it? Yes, uh, yes, yes. You know, it, it was a miracle that he became prime minister. We were fortunate that, he, that his whole life had prepared him for that moment. Uh, but even Churchill wouldn't have been able to prevail if it wasn't for Hitler being so evil, you know, that he decided that he was going to turn on Stalin and not honor the, you know, this crazy uh, uh, contempt that he had. He thought he was going to be able to to uh, overrun the Russians and less and, and beat them and before the winter came. You know, if it hadn't been for that miscalculation, we wouldn't have won World right. War II. Um, and we won't get into this. It's a whole other discussion, yeah, but also true. Pearl Harbor in, in Japan, what happened there with the mistake the Japanese made. I, I, I love listening to Dan Carlin. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dan Carlin in the podcast he does on, on history, but he just did a phenomenal one on Japan and everything that happened up to Pearl Harbor that I suggest everybody download and listen to. He, it's absolutely incredible. Well, that's just another uh, illustration. Let me talk a little about uh, about uh, our sure. vulnerability and what one of the reasons Pearl Harbor happened. It's relevant to today to this theme I was making about our our failure of strategic imagination, which happens over and over again because. We tend not to be as creative and as ingenious as the bad guys when it comes to the arts of destruction and war. The uh, Pearl Harbor happened because the U.S. Navy didn't think it was plausible that you could have another revolution in military affairs at sea by the aircraft carrier. Okay, today everybody knows the aircraft carrier is the decisive instrument, right? And, uh, and uh, even China wants to build aircraft carriers. Before World War II, the U.S. Navy didn't believe it. They didn't want aircraft carriers. Uh, There was a uh, Captain Billy Mitchell who was promoted to admiral after his death, who made a real pain of himself with the Navy 
proving to them that aircraft care, trying to prove to them that aircraft carriers were the wave of the future, the weapon the of future. the future. And he, he, you know, he sank armored ships with aircraft, uh, uh, aircraft and um, <clears throat> really made, proved the case to, to people who should have been objective and reasonable, but the Navy wasn't objective and reasonable. They loved their battleships. And uh, and they didn't want to report. Oh, what if we had to move them out of Pearl Harbor and well, left, know. even as bad as it was? At least those ships were the much well, it was older. Was an accident that ships. they were that they were yeah. out? But they but you Absolutely. know, if the Navy had its way, we wouldn't have had aircraft carriers at all at right. Pearl Harbor. The right. only reason we had them was because a far-sighted member of the House Armed Services Committee, a guy named Carl Vincent who was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee at the time, listened to Billy Mitchell. He was one of the few that listened to Billy Mitchell. And he forced the Navy to build aircraft carriers, you know, because the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, I used to work for the House Armed Services Committee. We write the budget for the, uh, for the armed services, including the Navy. And basically, <clears throat> Vincent said, well, if you want your expensive battleships, you're going to have to build carriers too. And that's the only reason we ended up with carriers, because Carl Vinson insisted on it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had any aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor. Is that incredible how, how of many of these things came down to one person's decision? Right. And that's why we have one an aircraft carrier named after yeah. Carl Vinson today, to honor his memory. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so th that's the kind of near-run thing that happened. So perhaps yeah. we could, now in the second part of this discussion, we can talk about our failure of strategic imagination and the evil ingenuity of our adversaries in these new nuclear superweapons that Vladimir yeah, Putin please. announced. You made some allusions to them in the beginning of the program. <clears throat> Putin described three of them. There's more, but uh, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary that has almost been forgotten by the press, okay? But <clears throat> on March 1st, 2018, Vladimir Putin basically went on worldwide television to make unprecedented nuclear threats against the United States. Describing Remember the film with, with it coming down over Florida and uh, with, with, the, with, the, with the missiles um, exploding? I can't remember the name of the specific one that launches and then all of a sudden about eight different warheads spread out. But it was a picture of Florida. That's how, how uh, uh, bold he was. In that in that diagram, I think I think that's what you're you're talking about. But he had a lot of not. illustrations. About a year ago. <clears throat> Let's talk first about the Sarmat, which is a uh, mm -hmm. it's going to be the successor to the current heavy ICBM, except it can it can has an even bigger throw weight. You know, their current first strike ICBM uh, is called the SS-18. And, uh, you know, it can carry 10 high-yield warheads and deliver them very accurately so that one warhead can destroy an American missile silo, for example. So this one missile in their current arsenal can destroy 10 of our, of our land-based missiles. <clears throat> the new heavy ICBM will have twice the throw weight and uh, wow. it can deliver anywhere from 15 to 40 accurate warheads. It's supposed to be able to carry... 15 of these hypersonic warheads called the avant-garde and the avant-garde itself is a very it's supposed to be able to carry a warhead of a high yield up to two megatons but it doesn't need to. it actually doesn't need any explosive power at all 
because the accuracy from these hypersonic missiles, the Russians advertised them as being able to evade our national And there's, yeah, maneuver, to maneuver yeah. around, yeah. right? Not to go up in one trajectory and come down, that's which we would be able to maneuver. That's what the Russians uh, focus on because they're trying to right. disinform us. You know, that, okay. oh, these things can maneuver and beat your missile defenses. They don't need to beat our missile defenses. Our missile defenses were never designed to intercept Russian or Chinese missiles. We, our current national missile defense was basically designed as Bill Clinton's version of missile defense. And uh, it's deliberately been dumbed down so that it wouldn't pose yeah. a threat to Chinese and Russian missiles. You know, because Bill Clinton believed in mutual assured destruction, and he didn't want to interfere with the ability of Russia or China to reach out and destroy the American population. The national missile defense we have today has got only very few interceptors, you know, something like 30 interceptors. It's designed to protect us from rogue states like North Korea. Right. And they thought that the North Korean missiles, when they finally developed ICBMs, would be much more primitive than they are. <coughs> but the North Koreans have gotten help from the Russians and Chinese in building their ICBMs. So they're much more sophisticated than we thought. That's why our national missile defense has only really got about a 50-50 chance of intercepting a North Korean missile with one shot. Okay, We can probably get it, but it's going to take multiple shots because the North Korean ICBMs are a lot better than we thought that they were going to be. Yep. So yep. this idea that the hypersonic, the avant-garde is maneuverable to evade our national missile defenses is a lot of propaganda. I mean, okay. yes, it will enable them to, to evade future missile defenses that we might deploy, but that's not the main reason they're maneuverable. The main reason they're maneuverable is because it gives them great accuracy so that, uh, so that they can achieve pinpoint impact on our targets. Uh, you know, instead of striking, let's say, 100 yards away from target, the way, a, uh, the way an inertially guided warhead would, the avant-garde can strike right on the silo, right on it, the way a cruise missile would be wow. able to do. Wow. <clears throat> so you could crater that missile silo just from the kinetic impact of the avant-garde. You don't even need a, a nuclear weapon in it. Although the Russians, because they're conservative military planners, would surely arm it with a nuclear weapon. Sounds yeah. like rods from God. And, yeah, and a colleague of some calculations. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with a warhead that is less than one kiloton, okay? That's one-tenth the power of the Hiroshima bomb, one-tenth. Uh, in fact, uh, he even did calculations that it was uh, 0.1 kiloton. So that would be one one-hundredth the power, one one-hundredth the power of the Hiroshima bomb. But that alone would be sufficient to have, uh, you know, a very high kill probability, the virtual 100% kill probability. <clears throat> so in effect, you really don't even need a yield you know, with the would that be from the after effect, from the radiation, or just from the impact alone? Uh, you could destroy the missile silo just from the impact alone, really. Uh, but the Russians, yeah. because they're conservative military planners, they would surely include some yield. They would probably put some yield in there. And uh, that's another one of their inventions. New things that they've got that we don't have, that Putin talked about on March 1st. He talked about new nuclear weapons based on different physical principles. That's technical jargon. We're talking about a family of nuclear warheads, okay? 
uh, that include super EMP warheads, that is warheads that are specially designed for some effect like super EMP or neutron radiation or, neutron. or yeah. clean uh, fusion weapons, clean, so that, so that basically you have a, a warhead type that uses almost no fission, okay? But it's just fusion. Fission is what the fallout comes from. Mm-hmm. And, the more, and the less fission you have in a warhead, the less fallout there will be. So if you can make a pure fusion warhead, which the Russians apparently have, you know, you can make an attack that generates no fallout. And, and then they can move in right away because they don't because there is no fallout. Then yeah, right. Then they could uh, come right into the country. Uh, that's important because it enables you to fight basically a nuclear war that's clean, all right, and li- right. And, and and keep the collateral damage to the population very very limited. So that instead of killing a few million people, you know, with a first strike, you know, you might you might kill only hundreds of people. Just the just the. Uh, Officers that are associated with the uh, bomb bombers and, the, uh, and or, the, uh, missile yeah. silos and the uh, you know so it could be a few hundred or a few thousand people at most you know uh, and, and and actually executed disarming nuclear first strike against the United States. <laughs> now the uh, another one of the uh, weapons that you had alluded to was this so-called submarine, the Poseidon, and it's not really uh, yeah. it's a uh, robot submarine. Uh, people that's not right. understand that it's unmanned. Uh, it's artificially intelligent. It's designed to carry a hundred megaton bomb. Uh, so this is totally unprecedented. And uh, it is a uh, hundred megaton bomb is the most powerful nuclear weapon that has ever been designed by any nation. Russia tested one of these things back in the early 90s. Yeah, what was the name of that one? So it's that big as that that huge hydrogen. I can't remember what they called it. Called the uh, and uh, that's it. That's it was so that's powerful it. that they only tested it yeah. to half yield. It went uh, 60 megatons, but it was designed yeah. to, build to, 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 to be higher, something between 100 and 150 megatons. And basically, for what they've done is they've armed this submarine with the Tsar bomb <laughs> or something like it that has a very high yield. And Putin has uh, advertised this thing as basically being a for generating tidal waves, radioactive tidal waves. That's what scares me the most. That yeah, would uh, inundate the shores of the United States. And, uh, you know, the, our coasts are the most inhabited part of the region. And it would contaminate the coasts, wipe people out with these huge tidal waves, and, and the coast would be uninhabited. Hundreds of feet high, I, I personally, imagine. Yeah, I personally think that the use of the Poseidon as a tidal wave bomb is also disinformation. That the Russians are trying to distract us from its real mission. Okay. They don't need to generate radioactive tidal waves to kill lots of Americans. They can do that with current nuclear weapons just by dropping right. them on cities. You know, that makes uh, sense. Yeah. I think what the Poseidon is really about there's I think it has two pur- purposes. One, it's designed to track our ballistic missile submarines, you know, uh, okay. and and destroy them. A hundred megaton weapon detonated underwater, used as a depth charge has a huge lethal radius against submarines, you know, well over 100 kilometers. And uh, uh, the, the Russians, just like we track Russian submarines, and we've got tape recordings of what their Russian submarines sound like, they do the same thing to our submarines. <coughs> so well, would you say that the new threat is uh, about submarines now? It's, it's, it's not about the carrier 
groups. It, it's really about these these submarines well, and, and the ones. carriers is also a target of Poseidon. So uh, this thing would go yeah. after that would sink the aircraft right. carrier groups. It would go after uh, our, our ballistic missile submarines. You see, the thing that saved us in the Cold War, the reason the Soviet Union didn't attack the United States in the Cold War and try to win a nuclear war against us was the submarines. You know, they got to the point where they could destroy all our bombers. They could destroy our ICBMs, but they had, couldn't figure out how to get all those submarines that were hidden at sea. Now, we had the advantage of that problem. Time. With them. Yeah. You know, they still can destroy all our bombers. In fact, they can do a better job now on the bombers and the ICBMs than they could during the Cold War. But the last problem for them is those submarines. Now, they're planning to deploy 32 of these Poseidons. So that, and we've only got, right now, we've only got 14 submarines, all right? They're going to go down to, uh, to 12 uh, when the Ohio-class subs are retired and we, and we start deploying Columbia. They'll go down to 12. Now, they're not all at sea. That doesn't mean we've got 12 submarines at yeah. sea on a day-to-day basis. You know, you can only, uh, only two-thirds of them are at port, and only one-third are at sea. You know, uh, uh, you can only sustain one-third of your force at sea. The other two-thirds have to be in port to be repaired and uh, to look got at who's rest and that sort of thing. So when you've got 12 submarines... That means that on a day-to-day basis, you'll basically have only four submarines at sea, and that's the deterrent for the world against a nuclear World War III. If you deploy 32 Poseidons, that means you could, yeah. you could have eight of these things tailing each of our ballistic missile submarines that are at sea. And if we did manage to flush all our submarines, and we got early warning and we put all 12 out, well, how many times does 12 go into 32? It's, you know, it's almost mm-hmm. three submarines, three yep. Poseidons yep. a piece. You know, it's two to three a, p- a piece. So you've got redundant capabilities to have this huge submarine killer roaming around out there. Now, I wrote a report on this. You know, Poseidon, the other reason, purpose of the Poseidon, <coughs> I think, uh, is... Uh, uh, is EMP. The Poseidon submarine itself can't make EMP, but that high-yield weapon, if we detonated that high-yield weapon in space, it will create a tremendous E3 EMP that can penetrate the oceans, the water of the oceans. And you wouldn't need many of them to cover all of the oceanic areas where our submarines patrol with an EMP that could destroy the submarines. And uh, uh, so that could be another purpose. I, you know, I think I think it's a twofold. They're trying to give a double whammy to our subs here. One of them would be for the Poseidon to destroy them directly by, you know, with a hundred megaton weapon being detonated underwater. And the other approach to go after them indirectly, you know, with the EMP weapon. And uh, I think they want to. Uh, I think Poseidon. They're talking about it publicly to kind of distract us from this EMP threat that they could that they could utilize. Well, they just sit around our coast. I mean, I know in the news they talk about once in a while with the bombers flying in over Alaska and then we kind of escort them out. But what they don't discuss, because obviously there would be so much fear, but it's just that the Russian submarines that are just cruising up and down our coasts, uh, I, you know, constantly. And we just really just let it happen. Yeah, the Poseidon is actually going to go out there. We've only got two 
uh, bases, Kings Bay, Georgia, and uh, and in Washington, uh, Washington State, uh, we've got two bases for our uh, ballistic right. missile submarines, and uh, or maybe it's Oregon. Anyway, it's one of those northeastern uh, northeastern yeah, north. states. North, uh, yeah. And the idea for Poseidon is to hang out around those, you know, settle down in the mud or just sort of hang out, uh, waiting for the ballistic missile submarines to patrol, and then they'd try to follow them around to get within enough, close enough distance of those submarines. And again, you know, they could be a couple hundred kilometers away and still destroy the submarine. Uh, Do you know what they've done to their engines so that we can't track them? Is there something different that they're using for propulsion? They're using a nuclear reactor. So once these things are out there, they can basically stay out there forever because uh, the limiting factor on, on on nuclear submarines is not the but I mean as, as the, the propeller crew. because that's usually the what they hear right it's, it's the sound of the, of the propeller the submarines and they can only be out there on patrol for about six months at a time so these things can be basically be out there forever and uh, they're not uh they're, it's it's obviously easier to make something like the Poseidon quieter because it's so small you know and it's uh you know you don't have okay to so that that's it. that's what I was okay. There's, all, right, so there's a lot, that. you know, there's all the kinds of things that make noise. I mean, just imagine the kinds of amount of noise you have when you've got a boat that has Power. 150 people on it that have to be fed and they have to take yeah. showers and all the things that you need to support 150 people, right? That's going to, even yeah. no matter how quiet your engines are, you know, something like that's going to make some noise. And all of that problem. Well, sound travels, what is it, six times, six times faster in water? So, yeah, yeah you hear everything. kilometers per hour uh, is the speed. And now, uh, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, if you did a nuclear EMP attack, I mean, one of the, from the general staff's point of view, they're prepared to win two different kinds of nuclear war, okay? One of them is the f- first, the thing we were talking about in the beginning of this program, which is this new way of warfare that's focused on collapsing our electric grid and other life-sustaining critical infrastructures, so that you only need one nuclear weapon, an EMP attack, to do that. One of the things I should have pointed out, too, or a cyber attack, right? is that, is that uh, with, a, is a, with the EMP attack, if you're using a super EMP weapon, the field strengths are so great from a super EMP weapon that it can actually fry your, your, your bombers, your ICBMs, uh, the command and control systems that are needed to talk to submarines, all of that can be fried. So that in effect, the submarines would also be neutralized by the EMP. So you'd basically win the nuclear war without actually having to use Poseidon or Sarmat or any of these other nuclear super weapons. But that's not good enough. Well, why, why in the world, Dr. Perry, can I ask you this? And I don't mean to interrupt because it's important. Why did we <laughs> use Chinese chips? In our uh, military vehicles, whether there's planes, submarines, I mean, this is our, our enemy and, and we were using chips. And I believe that's one of the reasons why Trump and his $700 billion, um, is being used in order to replace those chips. But, you know, this is for another, another discussion, obviously. But as we all know, there was a lot of information provided to the, to the Chinese um, you know, 
through servers, let's just say, <laughs> okay, here, um, that uh, just angers me to such a degree of, uh, you know, the amount of, of treason, I'll call it, just going to say it, um, of information given to them and, and these chips, um, that, that are, that are used. Uh, if you know about that, I, I don't know, but, um, you know, and a lot of our planes were just falling out of the sky. Um, you know, people wondered why, well, you know, they had a lot of, uh, micro microchips from China, which we, is we just insane. Using Chinese or, or foreign anything. Not yeah, just in our military exactly. systems, not just in our military yeah, systems, right. but even yeah. in the electric grid, for example. You know, the SCADA, yes. the supervisory yes. control and data acquisition systems that are little computers right. that are used to run all our critical infrastructures, including the electric mm. grid, okay? They regulate the way electricity flows into a transformer. They run the stoplight systems, the traffic control systems for airports. They run uh, traffic control systems on railroads. You know, they run all kinds of industrial processes. You know, we, we get a very substantial percentage of our skaters from China because they're cheaper, okay? Uh, but all of these systems are critical to the survival of the American people. I mean, I So it could be a cyber attack. It doesn't even have to be an EMP attack. A SCADA from China to run our electric grid as it is to buy chips from China to go into an airplane for the same reason. But we don't think strategically, you know? Uh, or them one of the great ports. vulnerabilities and flaws we have as a, as a free society. You know, because, uh, you know, we tend to think with our pocketbook and not from a national security perspective first. We should always think about our national security first, not second. But we don't. They bought some of, some of our ports. Didn't they? China owns some of the, the ports here yes, in the United right. States. Like the United Arab Emirates that are associated with yes. terrorism. Right. terrorism. All right. Uh, I, there's a, a Mary Fanning, a friend of mine, has been involved in a crusade. Over, I guess it's the port at Wilmington, uh, uh, you know. Uh, but yes, I mean, you know, we're making, you know, in retrospect, when you look back at the histories, uh, histories of World War II, uh, and you look at the mistakes that were made by the Western democracies before World War II, History people like Neville Chamberlain, uh, you know, trusting Hitler, for example, uh, and people say, how could they have trusted Hitler? Uh, how could the U.S. Uh, how could the how could the United States senators be so stupid that they thought that they could outlaw war with the Kellogg-Briand Pact and that that would solve the problem? And how could those Oxford University students have been so stupid before World War II that they all signed pledges not to protect their country? You know, uh, right. to avoid uh, because they thought that this pacifist action would would uh, would appease Nazi Germany and and avoid another world war. Okay, and we make fun of that these days, and and uh, almost every. Well, we had all these American companies too that were doing business. All right, but our own behavior today, in many respects, is no more responsible. You know. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, my voice is starting. I was going to say we had all those American businesses that were doing business with Nazi Germany as well. You know, I mean, and also from the UK with the IG Farben and on and on and on, um, you know, until we, we finally somewhat put a stop to that. But again, it's, you know, always follow the money, right? So 
I think that played a part of it as well of why we, you know, didn't get involved immediately was because of, you know, a lot, some of these companies that were making money. Money isn't the whole answer. It's part of it. It might not even be the most important one. Okay. Okay. But we're also a Judeo-Christian civilization and part of the, and, and our natural orientation of our culture and our civilization is toward peace. All right. Uh, We talked before about, about how people who tend to think in terms of national security first, people who are on the military, people who are on intelligence services are among uh, the least honored and uh, uh, people in our society. And uh, that there are huge hunks of our society that are extremely suspicious of our own military establishments and our own national security establishments. And uh, people don't like to think about these things. We are just as the, just as you know, one of the great uh, nations, nations and people are a product of their history and their culture. Okay, right. That's one of the reasons why is Russia arming to the teeth against us? Because when you look at their history and culture, Russia is the product of a series of authoritarian, a ferocious authoritarian and totalitarian states that has had been, been invaded many times in its history. It's con- con- committed acts of aggression many times in its history. From their history, uh, you know, they know or they what they have learned, what they have become as a consequence of their history, you know, right. is a, a ferocious military dictatorship. Absolutely. Thinks, thinks like like drug lords or like the mafia. They don't mm-hmm. believe in 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 uh, in, uh, in in the way we do. That you can have negotiated outcomes and everything. They see it as a zero-sum game. One civilization has to win, and the other one has to lose. All right? Whether it's the Mongols, the French invading you, or the Germans invading you, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to live, and somebody's going to die. And that's that's the first thing they think about. You look at our history. Genghis Khan. Our civilization. You know, we've been so fortunate. We've been protected by the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans throughout most of our history. You know, the only time we had a really big, we had the American Revolution, we had the Civil War, you know, but since the American Civil War, you know, we, we have been hardly touched by world history. 9-11, you know, we're upset about that. Let's face it, by the scale, you know, 3,000 Americans died, and we've already forgotten about that, right? And, right, uh, right. Uh, you know, our focus tends to be, we, and we are a product of our, of our, Judeo-Christian civilization that believes in coexistence and forgiving your enemies and getting along with people, and we believe in things like contracts, right? That uh, to, that's yeah, why we're here, so we believe we in treaties. You know, Japan, we right? we're addicted, we are addicted to arms control and treaties because we really believe that right. if we can get the other guy, we, if we can just understand the world from the other guy's point of view, and we can get him to sign a piece of paper, okay. We can make our differences go away. And that's what we thought before World War II. That's what we thought before World War One. That's what we thought all through the Cold War. And that's what we're thinking about today. Even though we thought we like were violating we all the treaties, we still we want to negotiate this, new treaties with them. And this is a... How do we sustain it? Pardon me? Because how do we sustain this? Because we are, and we don't like to say this word, but we are an empire. Basically, and probably the greatest, biggest empire in the history of the world. And like you said, 
we like to do things with di- di- diplomacy and, and our en- and our enemies do not. And I think we have, yeah. what is it, 800 yeah, bases all around the world. Kind of empire. Okay? If, if that's, I'm not sure right. that that's the appropriate word for us because, because imperial systems in the past always existed for the benefit of the of the of the of the home country of the dominant power like Rome, you know, uh, you know, or in case of Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, it tended to dominate. The dominant power was benefited most by its empire. You know, the empire exploited the people who belonged to that empire. We're probably we've got to be well, the first Japan empire be a good in history. That, we're the first that. empire in history where most of the benefits flow to the people who belong to our empire. We spend more on the defense of NATO than NATO does on defending itself. You know, uh, more Americans die okay. for the defense of the members of our empire than 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 the members of the empire uh, die to defend America. You know, the economic look at right, the reconstruction right. of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, I'd be, uh, you know, you look at them. We were spending fifty billion dollars a year in Afghanistan. If you want to consider Afghanistan part of our empire. I mean, what a benign empire that is, building roads, schools, trying to bring freedom to those people. It was a failed enterprise, a naive enterprise, but we are, uh, uh, you might call it, or maybe we're an anti-empire, okay? Uh, But we're uh, different from all the other empires that have ever existed because we're, because the people that belong to our empire benefit more than the American people do from belonging to the United States empire. We made Japan into a you know a, a business uh, and empire. Yeah, we rebuilt Japan after, and, and Germany. Uh, the Marshall them. Plan. We rebuilt yeah. our economic Germany. competitors yeah. in Europe. You know, uh, <clears throat> I don't like people calling America an empire because because that's what they do in college. Okay, all these left wing mm-hmm. pinhead college professors uh, use that to cast dispersions on American history. You know, there's a, a William Appleman Williams was one of the new left historians in a book that I had to read when I was going to graduate school called The Tragedy of American Diplomacy. And he and Garl Perovitz and a whole bunch of the new left argued that, yeah, America is an empire, but they saw us as an evil empire and that we're responsible for most of the problems of the world. And that's what the left wing American universities are brainwashing our kids into believing. And it isn't true. You're right. I, I, I shouldn't have used that word. I, I didn't mean it in that way because you're I absolutely you I know correct. you didn't mean it that way. I meant it for the benefit of perhaps right, what one college the student that might be listening to this. I want to clarify yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to, right? Because that's where we're we're leading, which is which is a, another discussion altogether. But uh, you know, towards socialism, and I don't care if you throw the the word. Uh, democracy in front of it, it it's that's still right. you know socialism, and communism. That that's doesn't totally work. deceptive. Just, democratic socialism. It's a contradiction it. in terms, actually, because right. socialist yeah, systems, yeah. you know, these people fundamentally don't understand the original truths right. that were so clear to the founders. You know that you cannot mm. have big oh, government. Yeah. The bigger government gets, right. the less free you are. I mean that that you know yeah. government power to do good. And, and let me tell you, uh, you know, people have forgotten their history again. You know, one of the reasons the, uh, the Western democracies weren't that afraid of Hitler is that when he became in power in Germany, to, from their point of view, he was doing a lot of good. You know, he was, uh, uh, 
Nazism, by the way, is not a right wing yeah, uh, 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 philosophy. It's a left wing philosophy. You know, it was it's a socialist. Not it, Nazi stands for Socialist Workers Party. Socialist Workers Party. That's it. You got okay? it. They weren't communists, okay, but they were on that left wing spectrum because they believed in using big government to confiscate the wealth of uh, of of the upper classes, and they rebuilt the railroads. They built this huge national highway system. Yep. It had great benefits for German workers were prospering, prospering under Adolf Hitler. He, right. he invented the, the, the Volkswagen, you know, to try to provide a new, uh, you know, really uh, inexpensive means so everybody could own an automobile. They had uh, collective vacations. If you were a member of the uh, uh, of, 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 a, of, of labor, you could you could you could do what had never people couldn't afford to do before and go on. Uh, Go on ocean liners to go on big, big mass vacations where all the people right. from your factory, right. you know, would go out. He started their equivalent of Boy Scouts, which was really, uh, you know, training, uh, you know, training people for yeah. military. Yeah. And so from, yeah. you know, from the perspective of Western elites, who also tended to be big government types and all the rest, you know, Hitler looked like he was doing a lot of good for his people. And uh and well, he had the gift of gab too. I know you're started. talking they about. Come after you, he could you know, threatening to throw you in prison at first. They always start off saying, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna give you free education. You're gonna get free health care. They offer all these goodies. And that's how, how you become starts. a slave." <laughs> yeah. Economic enslavement. Absolutely. Yeah, but I was saying about just before it was just yeah. You combine all those things you were mentioning about Germany and then a Hitler who could orate in the way that he could and and just mesmerize the the masses. And and I know that he gave out free radios to everybody in the country so that they would be able to listen to music. But then when he would come on and give his speeches, everybody had a radio which was ingenious, the propaganda, you know, that they used, um, unprecedented, you know, Hitler's, uh, uh, where he came from nothing. He came from nothing and, uh, and came close to world conquest, you know? And, uh, uh, now he ended up fortunately for, for, there wouldn't have been a world war two probably if there hadn't been an Adolf Hitler, but, but it was also his flaws that enabled us to win World War II. You know, he didn't, we didn't really win World War II so much as Hitler lost it through his bad, his bad decisions. But, um, so even some physical issues he had being sick. And I know there was some, some of his, uh, uh, things he was being treated for, who knows, right? Well, uh, before he, before he started having the medical problems and going mad though, I've always, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there are a handful of people in history who appear demonic, you know, and I have always believed that he's an example right. of that. Uh, uh, Same, yeah. The book, uh, I think it was William Manchester's The Last Lion, There's a, a, uh, which is a, a biography of Winston Churchill. But Manchester says something like this about, uh, about Hitler. Uh, he was comparing, because Manchester couldn't explain the phenomena either of Hitler's incredible ability to to see uh to see vulnerabilities and exploit them okay and uh he contrasted yes. churchill with hitler on the issue of france for example 
and he and and uh, Churchill spoke French. Uh, you know, he uh, frequently visited France. He participated in the French military exercises. You know, he was friends with uh, all the political elites in France, and uh, and 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 Churchill, for that, uh, you know, was confident that the French would stand up and 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 do a good job fighting against the Germans in World War II, and so he put a lot of his stakes uh, and 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 his planning uh, hopes depend on on his understanding of France. Manchester points out that. Well, like you said, it was that, it was that blitzkrieg. Didn't speak French, never read a French newspaper, right. you know, hadn't been to France except when he was in the trenches in World War One. All right. But he understood right. somehow, he understood better than, than, than Churchill did the rot in the French soul and how uh, there was a lack of patriotism and uh, that they would end up collapsing, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, under under the pressure of a new war and, and the Elan that they used to have in world war one was gone and that they were yeah. vulnerable to his predations. And somehow he knew that vulnerable. somehow Churchill did knew it. it, you know, I mean, that's just, it sends chills up your spine. Well, how bad, you're right. Because how could you after going in, into Poland and then one lie right. after another and each one of them another believed him. So there that, had to have been something going on there. Like that, you said, for example, that I, in the, you know, I happen to be reading another Churchill biography here, a new one, uh, is uh, uh, in the West, before Churchill became prime minister, uh, few elites took him seriously. Most of the Western elites thought Churchill was, you know, an irrelevant factor, that he would never come back. You know, he had been disgraced because, and during World War One when he was the first lord of the admiralty over the Gallipoli affair, you know, because of the... Uh, his, his, he had a an ingenious plan, but it didn't work out, and they lost a quarter million lives in the Battle of Gallipoli. Okay, and Churchill was blamed for that, and he never really came back from 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 that until he became prime minister again. And people kind of dismissed his warnings about Hitler as being crazy, and uh, that Hitler was a man we could reason with. And uh, and uh, uh, up until that meeting I talked to to you about before, uh, where. Uh, where, where Churchill actually became the prime minister, and he wasn't voted in, he was actually just appointed. He was chosen by Neville Chamberlain, who recommended him to the king. But up until that point, everybody thought, well, Churchill's career is dead. He's not going anywhere. Don't worry about Churchill. But Hitler right. understood that Churchill was the greatest threat among all the Englishmen to him. He mentioned this in speeches. He was, he was constantly trying to find a way to undermine Churchill among his colleagues to see that he wouldn't rise. All right. And uh, how did he understand that? You know, I mean, uh, <clears throat> but anyway. Well, the resolve and the battle of Britain and them fighting them off with their airplanes and, and over, um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the channel is just absolutely amazing to me that, that, that part of history and and what they were able to do in beating them miracle. back. It was a, it with was their a, power. It was a miracle, it was a miracle. That, that we managed to win uh, World War II. And, um, and, uh, yeah. and it gives me hope that despite all of our shortcomings and of all of our mistakes uh, and, uh, and all of the poor leadership uh, that, that we've had, uh, that when the crisis comes this time, uh, that God will be on our side again, I hope. And uh, and we'll have additional miracles somehow. Uh, somehow, 
Uh, these is. things tend to work out for us. So we should not lose hope and, uh, and listen to the counsels right. of despair. Uh, uh, a little preparation now, uh, a little effort to help ourselves to go in the right direction uh, can bear great dividends when the crisis is upon us. Well, let me ask you this then, because I, I know you, you've got to go. I know you've got another show coming up soon and you're not feeling too well. So let's let's hit upon that real quick. So right now in, in what you're doing, what, what do you feel are, are, are the chances in, in working with Trump? I'd have to imagine he's a very smart man, that he understands this, that he's got to be putting some of this money into uh you know this this piece of legislation which i think you have right some legislation that we need to get passed in order to um uh to um build up the the power grid to be able to withstand uh these types of attacks what 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 do you feel are the chances that we're going to get this done well we're on the that's a tough one right (laughs) I think we'll know before the end of this year whether the problem is going okay. to be solved or not for the United States. Um, president Trump deserves great credit for being the first president to include EMP in his national security strategy. Yes. You know, he mentions right. EMP along with cyber warfare, you know, this whole combined arms warfare thing we're talking about to protect our electric grids and our other life-sustaining critical infrastructures. And his national security strategy is basically directing the federal government to protect the American people from this threat. The Congress deserves great credit on a bipartisan basis. They passed a bill called the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act. Bipartisan basis, okay. unanimously, I would add. You know, rarely hear about the yeah, Democrats and Republicans to joining to do anything together, but they did on this. The Critical Infrastructure Protection Act requires the Department of Homeland Security to develop a strategy to protect the country from uh, from EMP. So that's the beginning and, uh, then. Okay, so that speak, piece of the puzzle. <clears throat> there is a uh, an executive order. This is the Battle of Gettysburg, mm-hmm. a presidential executive order on protecting the country from EMP. And I'm in a tug of war with... <clears throat> with the people yes. who don't want it to be a strong executive order. And it'll basically be enabled the, uh, the utilities on are one of the factors. Obama holdovers are also fighting against me on the other side. Incredible. They basically want to water Incredible. the executive order down so that it'll basically do nothing uh, versus people on my side who want a strong executive order that will give high priority to doing this. And if the president signs a strong executive order, then it will it'll solve this problem, uh, and uh, if he doesn't, yeah. then we've lost. Uh, we've lost the battle of Gettysburg. Well, there's a battle behind the scenes that most of us don't know about that's going on from these holdovers, like you said, from the Obama administration well, and from what Trump's trying in to the do. America that I- and we've got to win. The good side needs to win. It must. Um, and and getting this done, and, and like you said, God being hopefully, you know, on, on our side, um, so that we can get these things passed. Sorry, in America go ahead. I grew up in, I wouldn't even have to be here today talking about these things. If, if our constitutional right. Republic still worked the way it did in the past, because when the president of the United States and his national security strategy directs the federal government to act, to protect the American people from EMP in the past, that would have happened. And when the, uh, 
Congress of the United States seconds the motion and passes a, a law like the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act to say, to say, yes, the president is right. And as a matter of law, you will protect the critical infrastructures. That should have been it. Yeah. Okay. That should have been it. And it should have happened because you've got the executive branch, the commander in chief and the Congress in agreement, making it a matter of law. But you know, we're not in the America that I grew up in anymore. I, I was just going to say your your key word was constitutional exactly. republic. And again, I don't mean to interrupt, but that is so important to me because people don't realize that that's what we are. However, we have changed. We 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 kind of we're not because of all the Patriot Acts and all of the different things that have occurred that are, we don't have the Constitution back. I mean, the, the greatest documents ever written in the history of mankind between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which is being eroded. And I know this is a totally different conversation, but it's not yes, a, it's a, we need that to back. What I'm saying, you know? I mean, Mark Levin has made a great point, <clears throat> I think, of warning that right. you know, while on paper we're supposed to be a constitutional republic, in practice, and in fact, we're more of an administrative statement. Well, that's frankly, we have these unelected bureaucrats hundreds of thousands of them that yeah. make the decision about which laws they want to enforce, which executive orders that they follow. And that's the problem. You know, we've got, we've got these Obama holdovers and not just Obama holdovers, but, uh, but people who have been serving uh, in, in high ranking, well-paid civil servants, you know, that live in the mansions in the Washington area who are never affected by downturns in the economy you know, these people think they know better than the congressional They think they know better than the president. And, uh, and uh, for example, right. take the Critical Infrastructure right. Protection Act that I just talked to you about, a matter of law. While the Department of Homeland Security, under Kirsten Gillibrand, who I think is one of the worst secretaries of Homeland Security we've ever had, you know, because she's let herself be co- yeah. completely captured by the Obama holdovers and the deep yeah. state bureaucrats. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, You're right. uh, what do they do here? They're given a golden opportunity with the law, the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act to pass the co- to protect the country. But instead, she gets to, what they finally, after two years, you know, they produce the strategy to protect the country and, and the strategy, in effect, when you boil it all down, you know, it's a box checking exercise. So they can say they obeyed the law, but the gist of their strategy is, well, we're going to study the EMP threat. It's such it's so complicated. We're going to continue to study it until the year 2028, and then we'll make a decision about what to do. 2028. Studying it. Now, yeah. uh, you know, the EMP Commission provided a blueprint back in 2008. You know, uh, that's a ten year more than ten years ago now about how to protect the electric grid and the other critical infrastructures. So that's the problem. But they'll that's sign the a law or something that was written that's a thousand pages that they haven't read. That was just put in overnight, right? So that's that's what's now I, so now I, incredibly I, I, frustrating. I, yeah, I, and they've had I'm all this. I, time. Even though I'm a President Trump supporter, and I've been a huge President Trump fan, and I've given him great credit for the executive order and all the rest. Too, I think he has failed in a very important respect, and I think his presidency will be a failure in a very important respect because one of the promises he has not delivered on. Okay which one of his most important promises was to drain the swamp. Uh, you know, we voted yeah. for Trump. I know mm-hmm. one of the main reasons I voted for Trump 
was because I thought the man was capable of saying, you're fired. You're fired. That's he right. He's that still surrounded a thousand by times. people. He made, needs to say that a thousand times. He only needs to say it five times to get us protected from EMP. I know the five people in the government who are basically holding up and sabotaging us on EMP. If those five people were fighting, would be in a, but he needs to do more than that. Uh, what, the, the, what I think the American people don't understand and why, we're, why a lot of President Trump's agenda is being thwarted you know, is because we have a President Trump, but he's trying to run the government with an Obama administration. You know, so many of the people yeah. beneath yeah. the thin layer of his appointees Basically, they're Obama holdovers or they're deep state bureaucrats who have no loyalty to his agenda. And uh, uh, I don't want to make it a, a, a just a Democrat thing, because, frankly, there's a lot of Republicans. You know, the Bush and there's a heck of a lot more of those people still in the government. Rhinos and right. Obama holdovers and, and, and just the typical idiot politician. deep state bureaucrat, you know, who uh, who if he never heard of it. You know, he, uh, he thinks he knows better than everybody else, and he wants to continue doing business as usual. And these are the kinds of people that need to be gotten rid of, the dead wood and the idiot. Well, by the, by the corporations, wouldn't you admit that? Like what we see happening now with all the big social media uh, companies and everything that's going on, and, and they're even coming in now and, and, and sitting before Congress. That's who's really running the, the country. And as you said, these holdovers that have even admitted on tape, and you can see them on video crying, you know, because Trump was elected. And, and it's just this division is the problem. And then the holdovers, as you're mentioning, within his administration that he's got to get I don't rid of. Trump ever he's got understood. to get rid of these I think because he was a businessman, he thought. Uh, right. And in fact, I know they had this discussion when he first came in, in his first year of office, that they, that, they, they didn't, that they didn't think they would need to purge the system and engage in a lot of firings and replacing them with their own people because he thought that the, 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 the bureaucracy was professional, quote-unquote. You know, in the private sector, lawyers are considered professionals because it doesn't matter what your politics are. You can pay, if you pay a lawyer and you hire a lawyer, he will argue either side of a question with equal competence. You know, that's a professional. But that's not the way it is. That's the way it is in the private sector, but that's not the way it is in government. In government, <clears throat> ideology matters a lot. And uh, uh, it's, uh, they, these people are not professionals in that sense. You know, they come in because they have a particular worldview and a vision. Uh, and if and if the president's vision and objectives are different from theirs, then they will undermine him and sabotage him and wait. What was it, the, the APAC? And, you know, I mean, they had a 16-year plan of, of what they were going to do, you know, between the Clintons and the Bushes and then hopefully getting uh, Hillary in, which, of course, they thought, as they say, you know, which he would never lose. And, uh, of course, we would be living a, a completely, completely different yeah, life right you now. Know, I believe we would have been People have been, for, to take one example, this this coup d'état that's going on against President Trump from his own Justice yes. Department and FBI, yeah. and it right continues now. to go on, you know? I mean, can you imagine, suppose Pre President Trump wasn't president, okay, and we had the Obama administration. Yeah. Can you picture this continuing <laughs> to go on in the Obama administration? No way. You know, Obama right. would have shut that all down. 
Eric Holder would have shut that all down yep. and there would be no investigation of Obama. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it would have been called out for what it is, a political attempt at a coup d'etat to reverse the results of the election. It makes it easier that the mainstream media would have supported anything Obama did, okay? President Trump would have to take a lot of heat for doing it, but he, but the mainstream media despises him anyway and constantly denounces and him. Despises on a basis. Them. Well, I think it's Why the, it's the not that have. I mean, at some point, one has to stop yeah. feeling sorry for the president and say, sir, this is yeah. your own doing. You know, give the order, yeah. give the command, fire these people, tell them to shut down the investigation. Yeah. It's not legitimate. It's clearly not, not legitimate. I think he's going well, and, and the media, because it's not a free media anymore. I mean, it, it's it's obviously paid <laughs> off by these different corporations yeah, and, and, and their own agenda. I mean, why, why, why doesn't this administration this lean on the Federal Communications Commission to start enforcing certain right. provisions there what, that uh, are supposed to prohibit the kind of activity we see coming from the mainstream media? That's so obviously political and biased. And he should be on TV more. He should be doing fireside chats with the American public, letting them know what's going on and behind the scenes. And then let me ask you this, which is a controversial question, but what what do you feel about this QAnon phenomenon? The QAnon phenomenon? Have you heard of that? You know, the, the QAnon? The what? QAnon. The, the Q movement about this, oh, you know, somewhat of a conspiracy of having Q and right that the military project, people behind Trump, behind the scenes that are doing certain things and hopefully draining the swamp. And, you know, that there's a again, that there's a battle behind the scenes well, going on. I, I don't I don't uh, follow QAnon. I don't know any much about it. I've heard, I've okay, heard yeah, it. I was just wondering. But I can tell you from where I sit. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, the the uh, swamp is alive and well. There's not a lot happening to fire it or or, or, or replace these people. Uh, uh, right. Uh, I think Trump made a lot of progress in the first year of his administration because these people were afraid they were going to be fired and they had their heads down and they were behaving themselves for a while. But after they realized that he wasn't going to fire them, you know, have you noticed how things have gotten worse and worse? They feel safe now, and they're and, and, and so yeah. the bureaucracy is coming out of uh, out from under their rocks and uh, and getting more and more aggressive in, in trying to undermine the president. Well, I see by the clock on the clubhouse well, wall new here, we've gone an hour and a half, and uh, I need to preserve my, my voice for the next uh, interview. Yeah, I know, I know, I know you do. And real quick, Jennifer. I know that you had a question and she had a, a, a good one and just about how the American public, what, what could they do, if you could just quickly say, to prepare for something like this? And I know that you've said before in the past, look, have at least six months worth of food, water, provisions. But then again, re- realistically, we know that's probably not even nearly enough. But is there anything that, that, that we can do? There's plenty that people can do. We are the masters uh, of our event like If this I can happens. answer your question, okay? Uh, <clears throat> I've got a, my, one of my books is called Blackout Wars, all right? I'd recommend okay. people get that book. It's available on Amazon.com. The first thing you should do, I mean, Perfect. the first thing you should do is not give up on political solutions, okay? The, the easiest thing right. to do is to, is, to, is to get the bureaucracy 
to use the vast amount of taxpayer money that they're taking to do their jobs. Uh, you know, write to your congressman your, and your senator. Tell them to join the Congressional EMP Caucus, which is headed by Congressman Doug Lamborn. You know, there are, there's a bipartisan caucus in Congress that cares about these threats that's trying to get the country protected. Your member of Congress, your member of senator and congressman. Does that work if you write to them? Is it, will it work? Do they really listen to you if, if you write and you call and, and the number you do of, these uh, things? Calling is better than writing, okay? But I do, uh, you know, I do right. both. I, okay. I provide pressure on them. Both. Uh, I, I, if you've got any way of contacting the White House or tweeting to the president, you know, I'd, I'd recommend, you know, uh, 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 tweeting to the president, protect us from EMP or something like that so that he'll know that there is a, a constituency yeah. on that. <clears throat> Take, read my book, Blackout Wars. You don't have to wait for Washington and shouldn't wait for Washington to solve this problem. Individual states can protect themselves. Yeah. Down there in Florida, as a matter of fact, yeah, you great. are from Florida, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Uh, Governor Scott actually started, there was a, uh, a, 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 a Democrat, she's now a Republican, Michelle Raywinkle Vasilinda, who started a movement in Florida. Okay. She tried passing legislation to get the Florida grid protected. Governor Scott had worked with okay. her to establish an EMP and cyber legislative action group. Now, when Governor Scott I left, that, that stopped. But <clears throat> there's no reason that shouldn't continue in Florida. You can harden the Florida grid. You could. The governor of Florida, in my book, there's a one-page executive order that if the governor signed it, it would it would be uh, a, a huge first step toward getting the Florida grid protected. There's a bill in my book. Blank well, bill. All you have to do sure. is write in the word Florida. Yeah. And if that bill is passed, it would be a huge step forward toward getting Florida grid protected. Huge. So before you start huge. becoming a survivalist, okay, okay and what I think people should, mm-hmm. people should mm-hmm. prepare. But by far the easiest thing to do and the first thing you should do is try to make the political system work in your favor to protect your family, to protect right. your communities, to protect your state. You know, even if, even though Florida is part of the eastern grid, if you put on the if you protect your generators and your, your transformers and this can be done pretty inexpensively, you can keep the life on your grid. And how fast survive, could it get even done? if the rest it, of the it, country it, goes down. How fast would it happen? How quickly could we get it done? A lot could be accomplished in six months. It wouldn't be perfect, but a lot wow. could be accomplished in six months if you did it on a crash yeah, basis. Okay. Now, right. and in addition to that, people should prepare. I expect people in Florida are probably more prepared elsewhere than elsewhere in the country because you've got hurricanes down yeah, there. But yes, you should have a, right. a, a food I'm, supply, uh, access to, to water, have a medicine kit and know how to use it. But you should not. And this is a mistake that a lot of people, a lot of preppers make. You should not give up on the system. And I'm seeking mm-hmm. to make the government work for you, okay? Uh, because, uh, you, know, uh, you know, just because, and, and focus just on preparedness. That would be a huge mistake. You know, preparedness, personal preparedness is going to be a lot more expensive and a lot more time-consuming for you. And the find and to get the governor of Florida do his job, for example. Anyway, I've yep. <coughs> I thank you so much for giving me a no, forum here for you. an hour and a half. So and uh, that was awesome. Yeah. 
thank you, Dr. Pry, for everything that you're doing. And, um, uh, you know, God bless you. And, and I, I, I hope you're able to, you know, knock some heads there in Washington and get this done for us. And, and, uh, hopefully the people that are listening, like you said, will, will work within their own states to see what we can get done on, on local levels and send out messages and send out tweets and everything that we can possibly do. Because if people were listening to what we were just saying, they, they would understand again, that this is probably one of, if not the greatest existential risk we have right now. That's it is, my it is the greatest existential threat to our civilization, but it is also yep. no excuse for us to be vulnerable to it. It's one of the few existential threats that we can actually take off the table and protect ourselves from it. And I will actually be down in Florida yeah. on, uh, next week. I'm driving down there to, uh, to work with some of my colleagues who, who, are, uh, who want to get Florida protected. Good. Very good. That's good to know for me. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that so much. All right, we'll let you. We'll let you. Uh, we'll let you go. Unless uh, Jennifer, did you, did you had you had anything real quick or no? Poor Jennifer. We should have let uh, Jennifer do more talking. Oh, you know what? I think she. I we. I think we lost her by accident. All right, no worries. Thank you so much again for coming on, Dr. Pry, and, and putting up with me uh, <laughs> over and over trying to get you on. Thank you for, for making the time to do this. And I know our listeners are, are, are going to you know absolutely uh, enjoy this and do the right thing. And hopefully we'll, we'll get this done. Okay. okay. Be well. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Yep. Have a good time on your next interview. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Now, please hit that subscription button and give us a beautiful five-star review so people can find us and maybe a short, nice written review too, if you don't mind. Also, follow us and help a great cause in the making of this podcast and our dream of supporting The Innocence Project. Hit that Patreon support button in the show notes and help us with whatever you can today. Keep us up. And help us keep the duality of life in check by producing more and more incredible content. Also, follow us on Facebook under Pull Up A Pew Podcast and Twitter at Pull Up A Pew Pod, P-O-D. Instagram, Pull Up A Pew Podcast. Don't have a lot up there yet, but we will. For all you touch and all you see, this is Drew and I'm out.